Okay, Malachi chapter 3, just a quick reminder on kind of one of the big themes in here is the fear of the Lord, looking to God as a king such that he deserves us to take everything he's done and everything he is seriously. And so that's kind of the theme heading we've been looking at these different sections as we looked last week at taking marriage and family seriously, taking church leadership seriously. And today we're going to see uh, three distinct sections here. First, taking repentance seriously will be verses 1 through 7. Taking giving seriously, uh, verses 8 through 12. And then lastly, uh, taking faithfulness seriously. So a bit of a, faithfulness is a bit of a cop, but it's a bit of a catch-all, but I couldn't think of anything better. Uh, so seriously, repentance, giving, and faithfulness. <clears throat> Let's begin. So uh, chapter 2 kind of ended with a bit of a cliffhanger. People are complaining to God and saying basically, hey, everyone who does evil is good. And where's the God of justice? Basically, the wicked are flourishing. And this question of why is this the case? Why should we serve God? And God doesn't really directly answer this right here. He kind of goes in a different direction than probably the Israelites were expecting, or even I really expect as I read this. So they say, where's the God of justice? And he goes into a prophecy about Christ. It's like, I'm not going to talk to you about justice now. I'm talking to you about justice that's coming. So he says, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. This is a prophecy of John the Baptist, who is said to be the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah, prepare the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. He will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. So this is then a prophecy of the Messiah. So it talks about the first messenger, John, bearing a message of repentance from God to prepare the way for the second messenger, namely the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, who will come suddenly to his temple, which we could potentially take generally as just he's coming to where God's presence was with his people, or even particularly, even early on, Jesus is presented at the temple with Simeon. He ministers in the temple. He's at the temple fairly frequently. Uh, and Jesus came. Um, John, could I ask you to potentially ask the people in the lobby to be a bit quieter? You're a man with authority, so. Whoa. <laughs> I'll, stand, I'll stand more straight. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Even as they hush down right now. <laughs> the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. So he's saying, you're looking forward to a Messiah. You even delight in this prospect of this great king who will come and deliver you from this current oppression. They're under Persian oppression at this point. And they're delighting in this messenger who's going to come and reestablish them as a reigning and ruling empire. And because in their mind, that'll be the God of justice. The God of justice will be the one who comes and squashes the prospering of their wicked oppressors and raises Israel back up. But again, there's some subversion of expectations here because that's not the way God talks about this messenger. Not one coming to judge his enemies, but one coming to judge even his own people. He's coming says the Lord of hosts. And interestingly, this is a, they have to wait 400 years for his coming. And so are we. We're in a similar state. We're waiting for the coming of Christ again. And who knows how long we'll have to wait. But just like them, we're called to be ready and we're called to be prepared for how he would come. And the way we prepare is the same way they did, which is a preparation of repentance, which we'll see in these next verses, two to four here. So he says, you're delighting that he's going to come, but here's what the coming of the Messiah is actually going to be like. It says, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears for he's like a refiner's fire 
and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as silver and gold. So he's saying this is going to be a purifying coming, not just coming to judge your enemies, but coming to purify the own people. He says, you think you're going to like get in his good graces when he comes? You'll be like, yeah, we're going to be the right hand men of the Messiah. Come back, kick the Persians as they did to us. But he's saying, you're not going to be able to stand. It's a rhetorical sort of question. Who can stand in the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And that reminded me of that verse in Psalm 130, which says, uh, and I'm somewhat paraphrased, but um, if the Lord was to count our iniquities against us, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Uh, so it's like, if God was actually to count all our sins against us, we're all in the same boat that if we want to stand on our own two legs before God's judgment and all-seeing eye, uh, we can't endure that. Because he is, his judgment is powerful. It's like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. Launderer's soap here is basically the equivalent of like laundry chemicals. Uh, they would have like this boiling thing of water with chemicals in it and you put in your clothes, it sits in it and lets the stains come out. So both refining fire, which is used to melt down the raw materials to bring the pure stuff or actually the impure stuff to the surface so that it can get wiped away. Uh, both of these are processes of taking out, separating basically the good from the bad. So taking the impure stains so that the garment would be clean, or taking the impure metals so the metal would be pure. And in each of these cases, you have to have this pretty strong fire to be able to melt metal. And you need a pretty strong chemical detergent in order to remove all stains. Uh, uh, back like a month or two ago, I had this one shirt with a stain on the collar. No matter what I could do, I just couldn't get it out. Couldn't get out. I don't know what it was. I think it was like a lipstick stain or something. Actually, I don't know. I don't know why I would have got that. But, um, it would not come out, whatever it was. It would not come out. So talk about the, uh, yeah, the removal of impurities. Um, and it's not a gentle process, right? Purification, uh, ridding, if we apply this to ourselves, the process of God purifying us it's not easy. And that's why in Hebrews 12, it says, don't um, take lightly the discipline of the Lord. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Holiness, that idea of leaving impurities behind. And if we want to be pure as God is pure, as we're called to, to be holy as he is holy, we need to then submit ourselves to whatever processes, whatever fires he would put us through, whatever pressures he would put us through, whatever detergents he would put us in, um, and to submit ourselves to that, knowing that God presses us in these ways, God uses trials, God uses sufferings, and God even uses our sins in order to purify us and make us more like Christ. And so to be um, meek as it were to that process, that we would allow ourselves to be broken under these things and have that broken and contrite heart that God does not despise. Because uh, the more you resist God's purifying uh, the more it's just not going to go well. So to um, submit ourselves to God's good hand, um, I, the verse in Peter talks about Christ, that he um, entrusted himself as to a faithful creator in doing good. In his sufferings, it was that trust, Lord, I'll give myself into your hands, whatever it may bring, because you're a good and faithful creator. Or it even reminds me of, uh, do you remember that story when 
um, as a judgment for David numbering Israel, God comes and gives him a bunch of options. He says something like, either uh, I'll give you into your hands of your enemies for a certain amount of time, or I'll send a plague among you for a certain amount of time, or uh, you'll have war or something to that effect. And David picks uh, a plague because he says, let me fall into the hand of God rather than the hand of men. And it's almost like in an interesting picture, he says, Lord, you discipline me as directly as you can because I trust you. I trust that you will be only severe as is necessary. You will only give me as much as I need in order to work your purposes in me to be made more like Christ. And the promise is at the coming of Christ, the sending of the Spirit, this purification, being prepared by, the John, by John the Baptist, whose message was one of repentance, that is the preparation for the coming. And even as we want to be people increasingly filled with the Holy Spirit, a church increasingly filled with the Holy Spirit, the best way for us to prepare to be a people filled with God, overflowing with love, is to submit ourselves to the purifying work of God, to, through his word, say, search me, God, know me, try my thoughts and deeds, lead me in your everlasting way, to be a people of repentance, that we might be a people uh, who experience revival and renewal um, in our midst. And this promise says in verse 3 then, he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as silver, as gold and silver. And as we've seen throughout this book, one of the biggest rebukes that consistently comes through is the rebuke of the Levites as the ones who, they ought to be spiritual leaders and they're like leading the people in wickedness. They're the ones uh, offering lame and blind offerings and they receive such strong rebukes so it's almost like a, a part for the whole here that God will purify the priests. And in relation to that, that encompasses the whole people as well. You could take it that way, or you could take it in the way of, in the new covenant, we're all priests of God. It's the priesthood of believers and all being purified as if we were pure Levites to minister to God. Uh, also, that happens to be one of the best songs in Handel's Messiah. Uh, probably my favorite track. You guys know the one I'm talking about? With the, with the great, uh, what's it called? Is it an aria? No, no, what's that? What do you do? The da 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 There's a musical term for that. Anyways, he will purify the sons of Levi. I love it. Purifying the sons of Levi, that they may offer to the Lord an offering of righteousness. We talked about this actually Sunday evening looking at First Peter that we're being built together around Christ to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. That's what 1 Peter 2.5 says. And this is like a prophecy of that right here in verse 3. To purify the sons of Levi, the priests, the temple workers, to offer to the Lord righteous sacrifices. So as a reminder, that Romans 12.1, offering ourselves, first of all, as a consecrated offering. But then Hebrews 13 offering the sacrifice of praise, thanking God's name, and the sacrifice of sharing what we have and doing good to one another. Righteous sacrifices that please the Lord coming out of this purifying pressure, this refining fire. It's a beautiful thing. Verse 4, to offer, uh, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem. That's, um, that'd be a literary phrase that refers to the people of God. So we can apply that to the new covenant people of God. Will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. How beautiful is that? Our, after we come out of that fire, even within it, uh, as we've been refined and offered to the Lord righteous sacrifices, they're pleasant to him. They're a pleasing aroma to him. 
So beautiful. Yes, Andrew. What are the days of old referring to? Yeah, people are, uh, it's not a decided opinion on that. Some just say this might just be kind of like a turn of phrase thing. Like, as in the days of old, when maybe the people were in a better place or the Levites were in a better place, whether they would have thought all the way back to Abraham's time or Moses' time. Uh, yeah, but just this, a time when we were doing better than now, when our worship was more pleasing to you. Not that it ever would have been perfect, but yeah, might have been a nebulous sort of reference there. We're not sure. Uh, good question. Verse five. This is kind of like part two. So first, part one is like, I'm going to purify my people, but the purifying, there's the separation of the good and the bad. So now we see more the judgment that comes and separates the good from the bad. I will come near you for judgment. Again, remember when we think of judgment, we talk about this in Psalms a lot. Judgment is not just referring to a final judgment, that end decisive one, but can be um, a separating judgment or a making what's wrong right or showing forth a law that clearly says you are in the right and you are not. It can be seen more as, uh, as a process. And I will be a swift witness. God, in a sense, witnesses for himself. Uh, we had crimes in the Old Testament were on the basis of two or three witnesses, but God himself is a sufficient witness to judge, is he not? And he's going to be a sufficient witness against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, exploiters, and alien turnawayers, if I could use that phrase. <laughs> and it's interesting, these actually um, relate to a number of the different items in the Ten Commandments, particularly of the second table, those commandments to our neighbor. Um, but firstly, we see God against sorcerers, which is um, a violation of the first commandment, to be seeking uh, good, to put it, be putting hope in things other than God, to be able to try to find secret knowledge or direction or to serve something other than God. And although this is largely underground in our day, it's still alive and well. Um, astrology has a massive following still. There's plenty of mediums and tarot card readers, whatever you would have of these sorts of things. Um, I don't know if we find it as much in the church, but I've definitely known uh, people in church I grew up with who really did struggle um, with not looking to astrology. Uh, they just really wanted that hope. And even the great reformer, Philip Melanchthon, who worked alongside Martin Luther, he had a big problem with astrology his whole life, basically. And Luther rebukes him. He's like, what? like how are you so silly that you're just falling for these fanciful sort of tricks? But uh, uh, sometimes these things can be deeply rooted and actually a, a big struggle for people. Uh, against adulterers, uh, and really, I think you could include there all sins against the seventh commandment, as Jesus teaches, lust as hard adultery. And so we ought not just separate ourselves from these things. You know, by virtue of degrees, you can see um, a decreasing severity, but the same root in here. So to see us, we want God to purify ourselves from adultery in our hearts, from all rebel lusts, from all impurities of thought and deed. Against perjurers, uh, then we think of the ninth commandment there, um, against lying or uh, telling, being a false witness. And how much do we sometimes just not quite give the whole truth to people or slightly shade details to look, make ourselves look better or that it wasn't really our fault, what have you. We can fall into sort of um, a heart that doesn't really tell the full truth uh, quite easily. Against 
those who exploit wage earners and orphans and widows. Really interesting. I'd say this is a sin against the eighth commandment here, and potentially the fifth as well, um, of what does justice look like in business? And this seems so relevant here that we would almost not, like we'd almost be surprised to find this in the Bible. Like God rebukes people who exploit their workers as well as we could say single moms and kids without parents or even without fathers. Um, a lot of the most exploited people in the world fall into these sorts of classes. And we need to be really careful lest, lest we let um, a certain economic system determine our ethics for us implicitly. Um, and I remember taking a first year philosophy class in my undergrad and talking about exploitation and particularly exploitation in, say, like sweatshops or third world countries. And I was trying to be a consistent uh, libertarian at that time. And I remember arguing with my atheist professor uh, that we can like exploit kind of however we want because as long as we're paying people and they're agreeing to do the work for the money, like it's a fair trade without coercion. And he brought up an analogy of just, you know, if you're in the middle of the jungle and you have, say, like some food you've made, some stew, and then a lost family, say, comes in and shows up desperate, hungry, um, is it just to say, well, you can eat our stew after you like work for us for eight hours today and then we'll give you a bowl? Uh, and so I was kind of stopped in my tracks there because I had to say, yes, that's okay because it's voluntary. But this idea of to prey upon desperation at just giving the lowest common possible thing is actually against what even our Reformed confessions teach about uh, the fifth commandment and the eighth commandment, because our confession, or our catechisms particularly, teach that employment relationships follow the principles of the fifth commandment, that of parents and children. And there's a call for every employer to actually care for their employees in a familial way. Obviously, there's different responsibilities involved, but to be committed to their welfare and to be committed to their good, not just giving them the worst thing possible to convince them to keep working, but to actually seek to bless and to love. And obviously, there's so many ways you could apply that. We can't dictate rules, and there's so many complicating factors, but I think it's a heart issue of, am I trying to like milk every last drop of energy so that I can get the best deal possible? Like, is it a selfish, me, 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 I want the best return, the best this? Or is there actually love in the heart such that we're not exploiting desperation? Does that, does that make sense? Does anyone want to, like, uh, rebuff that or anything? <laughs> uh, and this is something that I think is a, an area of my thinking I'd like to develop more. I haven't really thought through implications as far as, like, things we buy. I know there's things like fair trade and stuff. And... Um, I should probably do some work on actually looking into these sorts of issues because we ought to be concerned about exploitation. Um, people who prey um, on desperate people um, in an unloving way. And I don't know necessarily how to, to apply that. But uh, secondly, another thing super relevant for our day, uh, it's in the Bible, against those who turn away an alien or uh, excuse me, a stranger. Those who turn away someone to, trying to enter into the people and nation. And I think this is a similar thing here. This is another case of a desperate person, desperate people, seeking refuge from a desperate place and being turned away. Basically saying, you really want help and we're not going to help you. And again, so this 
this is like, the Bible actually talks a lot about immigration as far as how to treat strangers and foreigners, those outside your particular nation. And policy and stuff is super complicated. I think it's difficult to say how necessarily to imply that. But what I want to really point out here is that this is, again, a heart issue based on the fifth commandment, that this is the reform teaching that the state is like a parent. And I know we hate the idea of a nanny state, if you will, but the roles and responsibilities in government are supposed to be, again, that of authority and subservience in a mutually beneficial relationship such that government, like good parents, exists for the good, the protection, the care and love of the people under their care. And now we could argue and say, well, they often do such a bad job of that, better to not have them do it. But principally, the government does have a job to provide the best care to uh, promote flourishing among the people as they are. And we don't always know the best way to do this. But um, this is as much as I want to say about this immigration thing. But as a family, the issue, I think, again, comes to our hearts is do we want to provide the most love and the most help to needy people as we possibly can? And perhaps this analogy might be somewhat helpful. I'm not sure if it's exactly holds true, but in your family, if there were children, and there are, that need families, that need to be adopted, we all believe adoption is a beautiful and wonderful thing. And to be able to welcome in needy people into your family uh, is a beautiful thing. And now the trick comes in, um, maybe you're not at a place financially or stably that you're actually even, you wouldn't be able to do that. And so when we think about people coming into a nation to care for them like a family, uh, we do have to think, uh, what are our abilities here? What are, our, what are the pros and cons? Like, how do you weigh that out in your own family if you thought of, say, fostering or adopting? But the one thing I think is for sure is our heart should be, we want, we want to welcome and love as many people as we possibly can in wisdom. Uh, because there are people that have needs and our family can help provide for their needs. And so at least in our hearts, we, should, we, we might say, I don't think we can do this much or we ought to do this here or there. But in our heart, to be open, to love the other. To love people who are unlike us, different than us. And if someone comes into the family, they ought to keep the family rules. They ought to be submitted to the family structure. As I'm probably saying too much already, but uh, we do need to have a heart that loves people and not just our initial heart is just everyone stay away because we're good and we want to do as best we can stay away. Fair enough? Yeah. Like in the Old Testament too, wasn't there also rules to keep certain out? So in here, is it more of those that are in need or have the refuge type of thing? Or how do you balance that out with some of those Old Testament laws where they were actually required to... Yeah, the, um, as far as... I could be wrong about this, but I think the laws were really just they weren't... Certain people weren't allowed into the temple, but I don't think there was anyone actually not allowed to be come into the nation. They just had to be willing to submit to the rules and requirements of the nation. And a lot of this was actually people that would come and be converted or proselytes. The reason they wanted to join them is because they're like, you're a good and righteous people with good and righteous laws, and we want to come and attach ourselves to you. And um, there was strict rules. Like, they had to have one law for the stranger and foreigner. Like, they couldn't show biases against foreigners. That was really important in the justice system even, too. 
that you ought to be fair no matter where someone comes from. No discrimination there at all. But yeah, good question. Yeah, Maggie. This question might not be for right now, but like, what do you think about the, the battle between justice and mercy that is like at the heart of a lot of the issues with immigration in America? People saying like, I have tons of compassion, but they have to do it the right way. Um, first, people who say, I have compassion, and they can do it. And they're like, I don't, I welcome everyone. That might not be for right now. I'm just wondering, because those are both like biblical principles. Or something. And what you just said is that they can, they welcome everyone, they have to do it like, I'm wondering what, what, what you think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like I think it's a like where's justice and mercy? Um, and like compassion always has to be wisely exercised because resources are limited and care is limited. So um, I think no matter who we're trying to help, long term you help the most people when you seek to steward things in a wise way. And that's where the difficulty is, because how can you say it's, we're too strict or too loose? Like, no one knows where the exact line is on how to care for the most number of people. Like, even personally, we could, like, all be out all day, like, helping people, everyone we know. But we say, I have limited resources. I actually need to work to make the money to even help people. Um, so we all have to weigh these sort of balances, and I don't think there's any exact answer. Are you technically, yeah. legally an alien? Uh, I, I, I am a permanent resident, so I am a legal immigrant, and I, I just snuck right over the border. Like, I just couldn't be stopped. Uh, got my green card wife, and here I am. Can't, can't leave now. So. Everything you say with a grain of salt right. today. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Can you say one more thing for Maggie? I, I travel a lot, and occasionally Uber in some, you know, yeah. who knows what city I'm in. And, and uh, more often than not, the person driving the Uber is an immigrant. And if you want to get them wound up, ask them how they feel about immigration. Because if they did it the right way, they have very strong opinions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was very expensive for me to immigrate here. Yeah, it was terrible. But <laughs> yeah, Chad. I'm just going to keep stirring this pot. <laughs> uh, so, concerning the, the right way... Um, and, and whatnot. Um, I, I think I'd like to touch back on what your um, very godly professor mentioned about uh, being in the jungle and the uh, family approaching you in desperation. Um, so, so they come up to your camp and they're like, hey, um, I, I need, you know, we need food for our kids and whatnot, and, you know, we're, we're hungry. And you said that it was unjust to have them do work, even if they agree to those terms. Um, now, what happens if there's uh, if, if that's if that's your law? If you say no, th these are my rules. You have to do it the right way. So, if your laws are ex ex uh, are based on uh, exploiting. Mm -hmm. uh, because again, you, you said it was very expensive. Now, I don't know what very expensive is to you. But I'm sure that there's some that possibly have even less than you. Mm -hmm. uh, and and what is very expensive look to them? Right. Um, you know, for for me, a Mercedes is equally as expensive as a Ferrari because they're both equally unobtainable. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, the the practice of saying, well, you know, they're they want to be here. And my law is you have to do eight hours mm -hmm. of work in order to be fed. Um, that's exploiting them. Uh, so how can we um, 
how, how can we seek to not exploit people, but still be just and fair? Because again, it, when somebody does do something the right way, and then somebody else does it the wrong way, you know, that's, that's not right. And I think we can all agree on that. But in the same breath, I don't even think that the right way is, it, it might be the legal way, but I don't know that it's the right way. You shouldn't have to pay however much money you paid to come into this country. I think that's a little ridiculous, um, right? So I, I'm wondering at what point is this uh, being, just exploiting the system? Mm, right, yeah, because there's that whole, uh, yeah, I guess there's that balance of like, we have systems and we are called to submit to the government, so we don't want to subvert our governmental structures because they are given by God, but then how do we work to change systems if we see injustice, uh, the Vogue word, systemically in certain ways? Uh, how do we work to change that? And what is the actual just way? That's where I think we need Christians studying the Bible, uh, good ethicists thinking things through to say, hey, Based on my wisdom and scripture and everything I've studied, this seems to be a wise and just way to go about. And um, I know for myself, I really shy away personally actually from politics. I really don't enjoy studying it or being involved. And I feel like I need to actually be more aware of these things. Um, but there was, a, there was a group in the, I think it was the 1700s in England called the Clapham Sect. And Charles Simi was a prominent pastor, part of it. Um, I believe John Newton um, and William Wilberforce kind of in this group of wealthy people that worked to, you know, basically abolish the slave trade, but they pooled their resources and pooled their biblical wisdom to say, how can we use this to actually help social issues and bring about justice and God's rule and reign in our day? And they were very, very successful. So, yeah. I think one takeaway is that 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 scenario that you played out of you're in the jungle and you have this too when they don't. You could set that up about ten different ways. Would yeah. have a, an amazing Sunday school class. I was thinking for an hour. I think it might actually be that for like ten weeks. There's so many aspects to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Um, yeah, I was excited about this chapter because there's a lot of good stuff, and we have to cover the rest in five minutes. So, <laughs> and this is about tithing. So this is really fun. Uh, God says, I am the Lord, I do not change. His laws don't change. His covenant doesn't change. And therefore, even though for their sins, he won't consume them. Even though from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. And here's the call to repentance again. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, in what way shall we return? Well, God says, will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, in what way have we robbed you? in tithes and offerings. So this idea of robbery here is interesting because robbery is taking from someone something that belongs to them. So God here is saying, your tithes and offerings belong to me. They are actually mine. So by you keeping them, you're actually stealing them from me because they rightfully belong to me and are given to you as a stewardship. You are cursed with a curse for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open for you the windows of heaven. Interesting, same, that's the same word used in uh, Genesis 7:11 for the flood waters. The windows of heaven open to pour out such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. I'll rebuke the devourer like devouring locusts for your sake, that they don't destroy the fruit of the ground. Nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field. You know, you're not going to have blight and cold such that destroys your crops, says the Lord. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a de delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. 
There will be a delightful place as God's blessing is displayed in how the people give and return to the Lord what's rightfully his. And if we look at this maybe spiritually, uh, to be a generous people, a giving people, uh, to be spiritually blessed. Um, so, okay, some words about tithing here. He talks about bringing the tithes, robbing God in tithes and offerings. And just historically, this is really helpful to know. There were three tithes in Israel. Three tithes. The first tithe was to the Levites to support them in their work for God, their work for God in the temple. And this was 10% of their agricultural produce a year. Uh, Perhaps the reason for this is the Levites were not given a land inheritance, but were to be supported by the people. And so almost in lieu of them getting land to make agricultural income off of, everyone else, in a sense, gave part of their land to the Levites. And one-tenth would pretty closely relate to being one of the 12 tribes supported by the other 11. Like a tenth would almost be that exact amount. So a tithe to support the Levites was the first tithe required. With a strong, that's a strong land component. Merchants weren't to tithe on their incomes. The poor weren't to tithe. Only landholders who made agricultural produce or uh, livestock, what have you. The second tithe was the festival tithe. And this was one-tenth of their food that they grew again. And this was to be blown in a week on their families in feasting at the Feast of Tabernacles. So they had one week where they would have this big religious festival in Jerusalem. And all you, your friends, your family, you all come and you all spend 10% of your year's income feasting together for a week celebrating God's deliverance from the land of Canaan. Uh, The festival tithe was the second required tithe. And the third required tithe was the poor tithe. And this was only given every third year. So every third year, you would give 10% of your um, agricultural product again in order to help the poor in your local community. Uh, You always were to allow them to glean your fields and stuff, but every three years, you gave them 10% um, directly to the poor in your local community. Um, Why every three years? I have no idea, but I was uh, talking with Julie this morning, and our best guess was that Uh, If you wanted to help someone impoverished, giving them more every third year, maybe instead of just sustaining bare-line existence, maybe you actually give them extra that third year, and there's, like, capital that they can actually have a good chance of making a new start. I don't know. That was the best we could come up with. So those were the three tithes the Lord called Israel to give. Um, Was it always in sync? Like, everybody was on the same Yeah, I don't know. I was wondering that, too. Yeah, or it was, like, your own personal cycle, like, from the time you turned 20 or something like that. Um, My guess would be it would be in sync, because with, like, the years of Jubilee and stuff, everyone was synced up, so I wonder if it just would have had a nice uh, break with that. Yeah, and on the year of Jubilee, they didn't tithe at all, because they didn't make any agricultural produce. So... Well, you mentioned agriculture. Was it other jobs, too? No, people that just made income, like merchants, they weren't yeah. required to tithe. It was because it had such a strong land component. This is like God gave you the land, you gave back to him from this land he gave you. Um, so could that mean like in some years it would be like 30% by the time that you get yeah. to write? Yeah, so mind you, they didn't pay very high taxes until um, uh, Samuel said, a wicked king will charge you like up to 10% of your tax. That's what he said would be wicked, uh, 10% income tax. Uh, anyways, I don't want to get back to politics again. Okay, we got to wrap up here quick. Um, I can't get into the issue of like how we're supposed to tithe today, uh, but there is a principle here. First uh, Corinthians 9 very clearly talks about paying those who work for God. Uh, we want to support the church and its worship and work. That's part of our vows. And we ought to be really generous.
and uh, learn from the principles here. Uh, okay, I'll cover this in one minute. The people, again, are like speaking in contempt of God and his religion. They speak against him. Um, but then verse 16, those who feared God spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. For those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name, they shall be mine. This is like that beautiful contrast of that purifying result of a people who, instead of talking against God, talk to each other about God. And this is, I think, just a call to us to fellowship, um, that we would speak to one another in the fear of God as people who meditate on his name. As we're meditating on his name, how much is there to talk about together? And God is listening in, as it were, to our conversations. The Lord listened and heard them, and he actually wrote it down. I want to take note that they were together speaking about me in their home groups, at church, with their friends. They'll be his jewels, were God's precious dis- 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 possession, to discern between the righteous and wicked, the one who serves God and does not serve him. Righteous, wicked, serve God. Uh, let's pray. Father, bless us on our way today. Give us generous hearts. Give us a hearts that desire to submit to your refining fire. Would you purify us from sin that we may serve you in faithfulness, serve you in justice. Give us wisdom in all the issues of life that come up, that we may be a faithful people um, in a faithless world to help others, to love them, and to seek the reign of Christ to spread abroad. Uh, for the sake of his name, we pray. Amen.